The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. Inflation's coming in and all the trend lines look really good. It was a, just an absolutely positive report. I think it just confirms that the, the rate hikes are over. As we look forward, we have a debt problem. And it's made worse by the other issues that we're talking about. The internal political issue, the internal social conflict issue is something that is affecting foreign demand for a bond. Outrageous comments about Israel and the U.S. from a key NATO ally and recipient of hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. aid, Turkish President Erdogan today giving Hamas exactly what it wants after initiating the terror attack in Israel and an angry, unhinged speech, Erdogan calling Israel a terror state and Hamas a legitimate political party. This was warming of ties. Mm. The relationship almost couldn't get any worse than where it was. But you've been quite critical of China. President Xi is desperate for American investment because he has made a series of economic decisions and political decisions arresting people where capital is fleeing. Over the last 30 years, definitely in the last 20 years, too much of America's relationship with China was dominated by commercial interests and not by our national security. It has to be brought into balance. We can't allow an economic system to operate where one country is stealing intellectual property constantly. In the past, those type of things got swept under the rug because of the lure of a size of the market of China. That will not happen anymore. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. The S&P 500 closed this week with its third straight win for the bulls, up 2.24%, with the Nasdaq up 2.37%, and the Dow Industrials up 1.94%. But the real winner was small caps, with the iShares Russell 2000 ETF up more than 5%, an area of the market that's been languishing all year, and just recently positive, up 3.4% year-to-date. The driver this week was soft landing economic numbers, and the key this week, a better-than-expected October Consumer Price Index, or CPI. Total CPI was unchanged month-over-month and up 3.2% year-over-year versus up 3.7% in September. The core CPI without food and energy was up 0.2% for the month and 4% year-over-year versus 4.1% in September. Treasury rates dropped considerably with a two-year Treasury note yield at 5.02% before 8.30 a.m. Eastern and falling 22 basis points to 4.82% by the end of the day. The 10-year also fell from 4.63% down to 4.44%, a decline of 19 basis points from the previous day. The Fed Fund's futures market reacted positively as well, pricing out the possibility of a rate hike and moving up the possibility of a rate cut to 65% in May of 2024, at the earliest after the results. Rate-sensitive areas in the equities had the best response, with the real estate sector up 5.3%, utilities up 3.9%, and consumer discretionary up 3.3%. We heard from a few Fed officials as well recently, starting off with Fed Vice Chair Barr says Fed is likely at or near peak rates, according to Bloomberg. San Francisco Fed President Daly said it would be bold for the Fed to wait on further policy moves. 
Boston Fed President Collins called the recent inflation reports promising, but that Fed should not overreact to positive news. Fed is in good position to be patient now, but she wouldn't take additional firming off the table. These comments didn't move the market, but it's always helpful to know what officials are thinking so we aren't surprised with a Fed decision. Other soft numbers today that uh, supports the narrative of a soft landing was a decline in retail sales of 0.1% in October, a drop in producer price index of half a percent in October, a bump up in unemployment claims to 231,000 last week, and finally, a drop in industrial production of 0.6%. On the positive side, total housing starts increased 1.9%, while permits, a leading indicator, were up 1.1%, while still being down 4.4% year over year. Also, the Philadelphia Fed Index, a manufacturing survey, improved this month from negative 5.9 from negative 9. Also important this week were retailer earnings with mainly winners from the reports this week. Target had huge gains on Wednesday, up 17.8% after reporting. Target has been seen three consecutive declines in revenues each quarter previously, but this time they gave in-line forward guidance, while in the last three quarters they guided lower following results. The spread in the guidance was huge enough that even New York giant Graham Gano could kick it through it at $1.90 to $2.60, but investors, again, were just happy they didn't lower that again. Ross Stores was up 7.2% following their earnings announcements. The retailer Gap was a big standout as well, up 30.6% following their results. Home Depot, another winner up as well, 5.4% post-earnings. The one down I was following this week was Walmart with a drop of 8.1% in stock value following their earnings announcement with below consensus guidance for fiscal year 2024 and cautious comments on the consumer. Some of the negative standouts in chips and servers this week was Cisco down 9.8% following their results, Palo Alto Networks down 5.4%, and Applied Materials down 4%. Additionally, for Applied Materials, there was a Reuters report that the company is the subject of a Department of Justice criminal probe over shipments to China's chipmaker, SMIC, that hurt the stock. That pretty much covers this week with a big rise in stocks and a drop in rates on lower inflation data and soft economic results. Additionally, consumer discretion got a nice lift on results while some tech names came under pressure. Up next, this week's guest technician, Tom McClellan. Five days after the Israeli prime minister was in New York at the UN announced that, you know what, the deal is coming very soon. And five days later, we had the attack on Israel on October 7th. Here is a sequence of events that I think are clearly linked in my mind. The US was trying to sabotage the Chinese orchestrated deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And then Iran then tried to sabotage the US deal to try to bring Saudi Arabia back in its orbit and then by essentially launching this attack on Israel. So I think from that point of view, if you think about this, once again, the 1,200 Israelis who died you know, on October 7th, plus the innocent civilians who might have died during the um, Israeli military operation in Gaza, to a great extent, they're just casualties of the growing rivalry between U.S. and China. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, Go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, 
Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals. Give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, since reaching a bottom towards the end of October, the stock market has been on an upswing. The year-end Santa Claus rally. Will this continue to December 31st? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Tom McClellan. He's editor of the McClellan Market Report. Tom, you sent me a chart, and let's talk about this first one because it applies to where we are in the market right now, the annual seasonal pattern. I've always asked technicians, why do we get corrections in August and September, and why does the stock market go up November and December? But let you take it from there. Well, the why question is a natural one that everyone has. We all want to know why things work the way they do, but it's not an essential one for us as market analysts or as investors. You don't need to know the why of why the room gets eliminated when you flip the switch. As long as you're confident that flipping the switch causes the lights to come on, you don't have to explain the why. When you see a market phenomenon like seasonality working time after time after time, you don't have to know the why to exploit it and uh, be, believe in it and be part of it. It is a durable phenomenon. It's been working for years. We can hypothesize about why. My, my belief is that it happens, uh, the, the market gets weak in August and September because um, the length of the daylight is changing in September at the maximum rate we all know that uh, December 21st or, or thereabout is, is the, the winter solstice, but at, at, the, at the equinox in September, that's when the, the rate of change of the length of daytime is changing at the greatest rate. And so uh, we sense that as humans, and we've it makes us tend to naturally pull in and figure, oh, I better be storing up whatever for the winter, and, and I better be more conservative, or I got better stack up firewood or, or can some food or whatever. Um, and and that's the natural way that we emotionally react to it. And that, that emotional reaction flows through into how we interact with the stock market. There are some political calendar aspects to it also that, that affect some of the texture. Uh, but that, I think that's the best hypothesis that anyone can offer or why seasonality works. But the fascinating part about this year, though, is that instead of getting the early October bottom like we're supposed to get, we got one in late October. Yeah, because I think it was right around October 27th, 28th when the market bottomed. So in this first chart, when you're talking about this annual seasonal pattern, given that, do you see this rally continuing to the end of the year? I do. And I see that late October bottom as being a bit of an anomaly. The the market uh, steered out of its lane a little bit and felt the rumble rumble of the tires going over the rumble strips on the, on the freeway and realized, oh, I better steer back to what my lane is. And so we've had a nice rally since that late October low. 
And it's really taken the market up with a lot of energy that's getting a lot of people excited. A lot of us people who watch breath statistics are getting excited about a couple of different flavors of breath thrust statistics and signals that have been showing up. When you get a, a big concentration of mostly up days in a row uh, with very strong breath numbers, that hints at strong liquidity backing the rally. Uh, and that usually means that there's going to be more rally to come. And that's what we have seen. And it's happening right on schedule with the annual seasonal pattern, which turns up in early October. We've got a, a late October uh a little bit of a veer off course, but the market is oversteering to get back on course and is rallying nicely and uh, things are happening like they should. All right. So we're talking about the cyclical pattern. Let's talk about another larger cyclical pattern, the presidential election cycle. Next year will be the fourth year of that cycle. Uh, what does that tell you where things might head in 2024? That's one of the first things that I ever did work on as a market analyst. I wrote my first article about the presidential cycle pattern back in 1994. I've been following it ever since. It's very effective. Generally speaking, the first two years of a presidential term are flat, especially when you have a new president in office. In this case, with Biden as, as having his first term in office, uh, two, 2021 was a, a very strong up year, thanks in part to the Fed still throwing a bunch of quantitative easing at the market, at the banking system in the wake of COVID. And then we paid for that uh, in 2022. So on on average, in general, the first two years were flat, but they were uh, quite an exciting, more exciting version of flat. The third year, which was 2023, the third year of a presidential term is nearly always an up year. You have to go back to 19. 39 when the Wehrmacht was marching through Poland to find an example of when the third year was not an up year. We had an up year this year, not the strongest ever, uh, because the foot the, the foot of the Fed has been on the break with their quantitative tightening, and that kind of restrains uh, what we can do with the stock market. But the foot of Congress has been on the gas pedal, but as they've been deficit spending, so that kind of makes up for some of the quantitative tightening that the Fed is doing. And so we've had our, our uh, up third year. As we go into the election year, the fourth year, that is generally an up year when you have a first-term president in office, because usually the first-term president is running for re-election, so he pulls every string he can to make everybody think things are going well. He talks up all the successes of his administration, and people hearing that things are going well and successful, they tend to be looser with their wallets and, and they're investing in the stock market. So generally speaking, the election year uh, when you have a first-term president, is an up year. It doesn't work, always work the same way when you have a second-term president, as we remember from 2000 and 2008, uh, which were pretty ugly years for the stock market when we had a second-term president who was not running, and we we voters were guaranteed that we were going to get an, a new unknown uh, outcome, and uh, investors tend to not like the unknown. We tend to fear it, and so that's why election years in a second-term president are not as universally up the election year with the first term president that were pretty universally up. I'm not sh sure that we're going to get that to work out this time because I'm seeing some dark clouds from of liquidity forces in the banking system that are looming that are going to bring ugliness in the second half of 2024. But that's a long way away. That's several months away. And, and we as investors here in November of 23, we cannot do our investing for what July and August of 2024 are going to look like. We have to look at what's happening at the moment. And while we were, are concerned about what's going to be coming in, in eight months from now, uh, that's not what we have to invest for right now. All right. Well, let's move on to something that has impacted the markets. It's been the Fed rate raising cycle and interest rates. We've seen uh, 10 year, two year, 10 year, and 30 year bonds touch over 5% a couple times. 
And uh, now there's talk about with inflation coming down and also the unemployment number, job numbers looking worse, that they're, the market's saying two rate cuts by next summer. Uh, what, what do you see when you look at the charts of, with interest rates? Well, we should have the Fed do a rate cut today, right now, this afternoon, if they were smart, because the two-year uh, is below where the Fed funds target is. And when the Fed sets its Fed funds target rate too far away from what the two-year says, it causes problems. So if if we were smart, we would just stop having the OF, FOMC decide interest rate policy. We would just outsource that to the two-year note yield, and we'd get a much better result. But that's not how our system works. Uh, so uh, it would not be a surprise to see that number of cuts, but uh, trying to forecast how many cuts we get by a certain date is not a very useful thing to do because it doesn't really help us in terms of investing decisions. But yes, it's it's very likely that we're going to see falling interest rates long-term and thus short-term as we head into 2024. But that's not really an issue for right now because we've got liquidity coming in from other sources. We've got seasonality working in the market's favor, uh, and that should be lifting stock prices uh, for the next couple months at least. January, uh, in recent years especially, has seen a stumble. We talk about the January barometer and the January effect and how January goes, so goes the year. Well, the first three weeks of January are typically pretty weak for seasonality. So as we get to the very end of the year, uh, if you've got some profits to take and you want to avoid a three-week uh, drawdown in early January, that might be a wise thing to do. But uh, consult your, your investing and tax professionals both before you make that decision. I want to go to something you have on your website. And I wonder if you explain this for our listeners. Californians cause late October dip and rebound. Explain that one. Yeah, that's an article I just wrote. I have a, a free weekly article series called The Chart in Focus, uh, where I pick one chart and I look at it in detail and try to explain to readers why I think that, that chart or that indicator is interesting. And in this case, I was writing about the annual seasonal pattern, which I sent you a chart of, and, and how that late October dip was really not part of the normal annual seasonal pattern. We've seen stock prices closely following the annual seasonal pattern this year, meaning we've had a very, very extremely typical year this year, except for that late October dip. And so I, I went into a, in that article uh, about a, a little bit of explanation for why that happened. Well, the first thing you have to know to understand it, though, is that the number, the, the amount of bank reserves and bank deposits greatly affects. Uh, and flows through into the stock market. And so we saw when, when the Fed was doing QE and they were injecting a trillion dollars a, a month into the into the banking system back in 2020, that had a hugely bullish effect on stock prices. Well, similarly, when they do quantitative tightening and they pull reserves at, and deposits out of the banking system, that has a negative effect on the stock market. What we had in late October was nothing to do with the Fed, but something to do with the IRS. What the IRS did for 2023 is it, it issued an extension, an automatic extension to California taxpayers, uh, or, or most Californians, 51 out of 54 California counties got an extension on their on their deadline to file their 2022 income tax uh, return. So instead of having to file on April 15th, they got extended automatically all the way to October 16th. And that was an extension not just for filing their income tax return, 
but also for paying any taxes that they may have owed for 2022, and also an extension on paying any quarterly estimated payments that were would have been due during 2023. So the April payment and the June payment that you would have had to made and, and the September pay, all that got postponed until October. And so if you were a rich and wise uh, California taxpayer, you said, oh, well, I'm not going to send a, my check to the IRS now. I can stick it in a money market fund and earn uh, 4% on it and uh, file my taxes and pay my taxes at the last minute and not get penalized. And so a lot of Californians did that. And what that did was to leave a lot more money in the economy, leave a lot less money in Uncle Sam's pocket, but we had more money to help push up stock prices during the year. But then when October came uh, and all those Californians were getting out their checkbook and writing a big fat check for 2022 taxes plus three quarterly estimated payments, then the, the, those checking accounts that those California taxpayers own, they, those checking accounts had to cover that check to the IRS. And so there was a big dip in October in bank deposits, which flowed through as to uh, into being a dip in the stock market. But then the, the, when the IRS cashed those checks, eventually that money circulated its way through the banking system and back around into banks and deposits recovered and the stock market recovered. It's just that we had a weird anomaly because of IRS giving Californians uh, an extension. And it, and it stemmed from some flooding rains that had occurred back in January 2023 that flooded those 51 out of 54 California counties. And so the IRS thought people might have trouble getting their taxes filed on time. And some influential Californians petitioned for some some grace period. And so that's that's how those things go. Uh, and actually, the the extent the extended deadline of October 16th, it got extended once again on the morning of October 16th. The IRS issued another one month extension to November 15th. But by then, most Californian taxpayers who were playing the game of waiting, that they'd already written the check and already sent off their return because they weren't going to wait till midnight. And so uh, most of that effect was seen in October. And we just got a little bit of an extra weakness in October that's not part of the normal pattern. But then the market uh, re rebounded from that weakness because the money flowed back into the banking system. And that's why we've seen the strong rebound. I want to go to another chart you sent me, and that was a chart of gold. We had some good action in the gold market, then it dipped and we saw it fall, uh, especially at the beginning of the month. And now it's been coming back. What is that chart telling you where gold is heading? Well, it's an extremely technical chart and that not all of your readers may enjoy, but some of them might. Uh, what we saw with the October rally in gold was very strong. We saw it get up to above 2000 again. And then it's normal after a nice advance like that, that you have to consolidate, maybe retrace a little bit just to give the bulls a break. And what we saw was a retracement back to a Fibonacci 0.32 or 38% retracement level. In other words, a, a well-known and uh, familiar fraction of that advance got given back to a nice place. Fibonacci numbers are something that a lot of technicians follow. In this case, gold overshot the Fibonacci number by just a couple of points. So it wasn't a perfect touch, but uh, the support did come in at the level of that Fibonacci retracement level. And it was also an interesting level because there was a, a triangle structure that had formed in August and September and we saw prices break down and then rally back through that triangle. So the triangle is no longer effective. But what I've noticed for over many years is that the level, the price level of the apex of a symmetrical triangle like that, 
can often have future importance. And in this case, that apex level just happened to coincide with the Fibonacci retracement level. So gold bounced off two different support agents at the same approximate level right around 1940. And now we've had a nice uh, resumption of the advance. I'm still looking for more upside in gold, mostly because so many people don't like gold and, and there's a lot of dislike for it. The, the gold ETFs have not seen much interest and that tells me there's much more room for it to go. At the point where we see people starting to get excited about gold, when CNBC starts talking about gold every day, when people start piling into GLD and IAU, which are the gold bullion ETFs, then we can say, oh, okay, gold's getting to a topping zone. It's not getting to that point yet. So given the fact we, we've trying to take out this 2000 level seems to be a barrier for gold. Can you see uh, gold going through that 2000 and maybe making a new high? I can. And the fascinating thing about that is that you and I and other Americans see the price of gold bouncing on, bouncing up against the 2000 level and getting knocked back down every time. People in other countries don't care about that because every gold investor thinks about gold in terms of his own currency. So if you look at the price of gold in Japanese yen, it's been in a wonderful uptrend. Uh, there's no overhead resistance at all. It's just keep, keeps going up and up and up because the yen has been going down versus the dollar and gold has been going sideways. So it's been a great time for Japanese yen-based gold traders to be invested in gold. Other currencies are seeing also a different picture. So it's very local uh, how anyone reacts to the chart of gold. And so that, that makes it interesting in terms of we think that the 2000 or 2020 level on, on gold prices is really important, but that's just showing our own local bias. Other people who think in euros or, or shekels or zlatis, they, they have a much different view of, of where the important price is for gold. Yeah, it's been breaking out to new records again in other currencies. Final question, uh, area I want to cover, which is oil. What's your take on oil here and natural gas? Natural gas is much harder to read technically and with the tools that I have. Oil prices are supposed to be going up right now and they're not, which is fascinating. Uh, one of the best technical indications that I've found is that I look at the action in gold prices measured in dollars and the movements of gold prices tend to show up again. Get, they get echoed in oil prices about uh, just under 20 months later. And so 20 months ago, oil, gold prices were moving upward, and that should mean that oil prices are moving upward now, and they're not. They've been acting weak compared to how they should be. Uh, what I view that as is a, a, another one of these examples of prices veering off course a little bit, and uh, eventually prices are going to realize, whoops, I'm supposed to be over there, and they're going to work extra hard. So by the, about mid-December, I'm expecting oil prices to be heading back up again. But then in early 2024, uh, I'm looking for a downtrend in oil prices. So if you're in oil stocks, I would say stay there for now till about mid-December, and then look to take profits on them if you have them, uh, because I'm looking for a downtrend during the, about the first six months uh, of 2024, again, based on uh, the leading indication message from gold prices uh, 20 months earlier. All right. So if we were to sum up, uh, Tom, interest rates look like they're heading down. Stocks look like they're heading up, at least till we get to the end of the year. New ball game when we get to 2024. Would that pretty much sum it up? Interest rates have another up leg to do, at least for long-term interest rates, again, into about 
early to mid-December because interest rates will tend to match what oil prices are doing. In fact, oil prices will do it about two to three weeks before interest rates do it. So the up move I'm expecting in oil prices should bring a, a, a corresponding up move in interest rates into December. But then early 2024, uh, long-term interest rates should be trending down. And I think that that's going to stem from waning inflationary pressures from oil and giving permission to the Fed to start lowering short-term rates. And so just to keep the yield curve from being too lopsided, I'm thinking that long-term interest rates are going to start coming down. We hinted at the yield curve earlier, and we haven't yet seen an officially declared recession or depression this time uh, that we've had an inverted yield curve. If, if we can escape Having a recession this time, it'll be the first time in history that we've ever had a, a an inverted yield curve that didn't result in an economic recession. Uh, but we're not quite at the point where we're due to get that because usually the worst point for the economy occurs about 15 months after the worst point of the most extreme point for the yield curve inversion. So we still have a little bit of time to go into early 2024 for when that worst point should come. And that's assuming that we have seen the worst point in the yield curve inversion, which is a fact not yet in evidence. I'm, I do expect that this time is not going to be different, that inverting the yield curve still does matter, and that we are going to see an economic slowdown in 2024, which is not going to be good for the prospects of the, the current party and residents in, in, in uh, the White House. I, I knew back in 2019 based on really long-term cycles, that late 2024 was going to be an ugly time for the stock market. And ugly stock markets tend to not be good for whichever is the incumbent party. And so I, I knew and told my subscribers in 2020 that whoever wins the White House in 2020 was not going to be able to hold on to it in 2024, just based on the immense pressure from uh, a bear market that I, I foresee in stocks in late 2024. That's not to say the bear market is starting now. That's something that we have to worry about several months from now. In the meantime, we still have a seasonal uptrend. We still have liquidity in the market's favor, and it's looking very strong in the breath numbers, but there is a bear market looming. And so late in 2024 is when you need to be worried about this, the stock market really heading down. All right. Well, listen, Tom, as we conclude, tell our listeners how they could find out more about the things that you do at McClellan Oscillator. The McClellan Oscillator is the indicator that my parents developed. Uh, you can see a chart of it every day on our website, which is mcoscillator.com. It's just a contraction of the name McClellan Oscillator. We write a twice-monthly stock market newsletter called the McClellan Market Report. We have a companion daily edition that comes out every day of the market trades. We have a free weekly chart and focus series, uh, including that article about how California uh, caused a big uh, cannonball into the liquidity pool and disrupted things a little bit. You can sign up for that for free, no strings attached. I won't spam you. I won't sell a list to anybody. It's just a way to get more acquainted with the work that we do and know that the good stuff is in our paid subscription of products. All right. Well, listen, Tom, happy holidays and have a great rest of the year. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsensewealth.com and hit where it says contact us. 
Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, there's a bit of good news for consumers as we head into the holiday season. The price of energy has been pulling back recently. Will it remain that way? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Robert Rapier. He writes for Investing Daily in Forbes. And Robert, you and I were just talking before we went on the air that U.S. oil production hit a record. I think it was, what, 13.2 million. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, I was just reviewing the numbers. So at the beginning of this year, you know, I was kind of trending the rig count and how production was gradually recovering from the COVID. When we had all the stay-at-home orders, production fell by 3 million barrels a day, and we've been gradually recovering from that. And I was just extrapolating out, and I felt like we would set a new annual production record this year. In fact, that was one of my predictions in January, was that we would set a new annual production record. We were far enough away from the monthly production record, which was 13.0, and that was set in the months ahead of the COVID pandemic affecting everything. I didn't think we'd get there, but I was just looking at the numbers from the EIA, and they won't be official for a couple of months, but they do report weekly numbers. And if you look at the four weekly numbers that have been reported for October, they average 13.2 million barrels. So we beat the previous record by 200,000 barrels. And we will, I mean, at this point, it's pretty baked in that the U.S. will set a new annual production record this year. Well, thank goodness they're doing it because we've seen the cutbacks coming from OPEC and we keep removing more land. I think the president is going to take the entire north slopes of Alaska off from being able to be drilled. So we're cutting back on where they can drill. It's amazing the Permian Basin, what that's done for U.S. oil production. Do you see that continuing? Or do you think that will eventually start as what we've seen happen to the other shale basins that they peak out? So where are we along those lines? Yeah, it's hard to say in the Permian Basin. I mean, it's been producing oil for more than 100 years, which is just amazing. It's amazing that after 100 years, it's still cranking out what it's produced. And in the U.S., we kind of take it for granted, but the Permian Basin has been one of the most important, and you could arguably say the most important, certainly from U.S. perspective, oil fields in the world. And, you know, I've seen a lot of projections that it will peak. It'll peak eventually. I mean, we just don't know when. I mean, there were people absolutely certain that it had peaked, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s. And then, you know, fracking came along and then it just continued to rise and rise and rise. But, you know, it's going to peak at some point. But, you know, when that is, I saw an article the other day, they were, I guess it was the IEA's energy outlook. And they said they projected peak demand within 10 years. And I mean, we've gotten those predictions before, right? So, you know, I remember when Bloomberg predicted that for 2022, because of electric vehicles, we're going to cut so deeply into oil demand. And I pointed out then, that was like 2015, they made that prediction. I pointed out then how ludicrous that prediction was. And it was, it was ludicrous. And so we've got oil pulling back right now. And you and I were talking before we went on the air, crude oil stocks at Cushing are way low, diesel fuel, way low. So what's driving the price of oil down in your opinion? Is it concerns over the economy, China, economic growth slowing? What's doing this? Yeah. So, you know, people always say that oil prices are set by supply and demand. I always say, It's really a little bit different. It's set by the short-term expectations of supply and demand. So the concern is 
that, you know, corporate profits are starting to slow down a little bit. It still doesn't look like, you know, recession is right on the horizon, but, you know, things are slowing down some, and there's been some economic indicators that suggest the economy is slowing. But worse, there's news out of China that has been decidedly mixed on the economic front. And, you know, China being the biggest oil importer, they have a big impact on what happens with oil prices. But the other wild card in the mix, and I've said this before, so we want to talk about what's going to happen to oil prices next year. It depends on what Saudi Arabia and Russia decide to do. Now, who would they rather see in the Oval Office? Would they rather see Joe Biden in there or would they rather see Trump in there? And I would say absolutely they'd rather see Trump in there. So I'm a bit concerned about what they might do with oil production next year in order to influence the election. I mean, they control the majority of the world's oil exports, and they could certainly have a dramatic impact. Our oil production is only increasing since the beginning of the year. I guess it's increased half a million barrels a day. OPEC Plus could easily take more than that off the market. I mean, they could easily up in the markets. And by depleting our strategic petroleum reserve coming into an election year, Biden's not going to have a lot of handles to deal with that. You know, typically in an election year, a president historically will use the strategic petroleum reserve to try to mitigate oil prices because high gasoline prices don't get politicians reelected. And Biden has, you know, taken that pretty much off the table unless he wants to completely deplete it. He could go into the election next year and just go all out and say, well, we've still got a few hundred million barrels in there. Let's just go ahead and use it. And that puts us at a very very risky situation. I mean, that's like having no homeowner's insurance on your house. You might get away with it, but you know, if your house burns down, you have a disaster. So given the fact that this could happen, so we've got a lot of variables out there. We've got China, we've got the war in the Middle East, we've got OPEC. So a lot of uncertainty and a lot of volatility. I want to turn your attention to another aspect that's taking place in the energy patch, and that is oil companies are drilling for oil on Wall Street. So you had the big acquisition of Exxon. You just had another big acquisition of Hess by Chevron. So we're seeing consolidation in the oil patch. What's driving that? Is it they're not replacing their reserves? They're not finding new oil? What's driving this right now? Or is it just cheap prices? Well, so I did an analysis years ago on BP's reserves, and I looked at the value value of BP, the market capitalization, and the barrels of reserves they have. And their oil reserves, based on their market capitalization, were very low. I mean, it was like 8 or $10 a barrel, something like that, the oil reserves that they had. And at the time, I made the point that, you know, if an ExxonMobil or a Shell could afford it, they could go out and buy BP and get oil reserves for far cheaper than they can go out and find them. And I think that's the case often. Yeah, I think oil companies are looking and they're saying, okay, what's the worth of this company and what are their oil reserves? And are we better off to go buy this company or are we better off to instead put that money into more drilling? And often, you know, there aren't as many, you know, prime drilling locations. And so I think that's the calculus. I think they just look and say, okay, we can get oil reserves here for relatively cheap, like you say, on Wall Street. Yeah, because if you can buy oil in the ground that's existing and producing at $10, $12 a barrel, why in the hell are you going to try to go out and try to drill, spend billions of dollars. It may take 10 years to bring that oil into production. It's just easier to buy an existing reserve. Exactly. You know, it's funny, Robert, because we're also seeing that in the mining industry. The mining industry is doing the same thing. They're not investing. They're investing on Wall Street, buying other companies. So the problem is, where does that get us 
three, five years from now, because I'm not buying the IEA's assumption that by 2030, we're going to have so many SUVs, it'll get into uh, dent demand for petroleum. Wall Street Journal just did an article yesterday, EVs are sitting on the car lots of dealers. People aren't buying them. Right. And that's what I've said consistently. I saw somebody on CNBC yesterday say, well, it looks like this EV takeover is going to take longer than we thought. I've been saying that for 10 years. I've been saying, look at Norway and how aggressively they've pushed the EVs out there and how slowly it has taken to how long it's taken to have an impact on their overall gasoline demand. And I said, now look at the U.S. We are putting EVs out there at a much slower pace than Norway. All right, we have much fewer out on the roads. And yet people think this is going to suddenly impact our gasoline demand. And I always say this is the risk with looking out and making projections and then not allowing oil projects because of these projections, because that's a recipe down the road for very high prices. I mean, if you're canceling all, you know, I don't believe what Biden's doing right now is affecting oil and gas prices right now. And that's simply because OPEC can trump that easily by, you know, taking a few hundred thousand or a million barrels off the market or adding it on there. But uh, five, 10 years from now, all those projects that could have been putting oil out there, if we need that oil, suddenly we're going to be more beholden to OPEC and the price is going to be very high. And that was always my complaint about canceling the Keystone Pipeline. You know, if you don't need it, if you think that you're not going to need it, well, let them build it anyway. I mean, the, you know, TransCanada was taking the risk there. Let them build it. And if demand is not there, then, well, that's TransCanada's problem. They took a risk and it didn't work out. Or you get to that point and you go, hey, this transition didn't happen as quickly as we wanted. Thankfully, we've got a supplier in Canada that can help us out here instead of having to go to Venezuela. You know, it's amazing because all these projections, I've seen the IEA report, and they're always revising their demand estimates every single year. They'll project X amount of barrels of growth, and they've been hammering that story. Oh, this is all going to decline. This is all going to decline. In fact, I just heard I read a story by 2030. You know, that's it for the oil age. You know, Robert, for the life of me, you know, maybe in California, you'll see a lot of people driving Teslas, but go elsewhere. It's not the same. Right. Well, I gave a talk in Utah about five years ago, and that was one of the questions people asked me. They said, you know, when are EVs going to take over up here? And I said, well, I said, when I walked in from the parking lot, I said the parking lot was full of four-wheel drives and you've got harsh winter conditions up here. I said, you're not going to see EVs take over up here. I mean, in the foreseeable future. I just can't see it. So, and that's the way it is in a lot of the U.S. You know, we drive long distances. There's a lot of cold locations. You know, you don't want to be sitting in a traffic jam in a blizzard with an EV. I mean, they're just not there yet. Yeah, it's amazing. I had a friend that came to visit. He lives up in Northern California. When he went back, this was last February, and we had, you know, all those rains. And he said there was a traffic jam because the Teslas were in this traffic jam and their batteries ran dead. So they had to get tow trucks into the freeway to take the Teslas off the freeway because their batteries went dead. It's not a good thing. So given this fact, and you know, this is funny because I bought my first EV and within two weeks, my house is solar powered. But Robert, I pulled into a charging. It was in a parking lot of a Bank of America. They had three charging stations. I had to wait in line for 20 minutes for one of the charging stations to open up because somebody else was using it. Then I'd bring my car to the charging station. That was 30 minutes. So 50 
60 minutes waiting and charging compared to somebody that has a gasoline car. You pull into a gas station, five minutes, boom, you're on the road again. And I finally got my own home charger. Right. I've said people aren't going to put up with this. They're not going to put up with driving across country and having to stop for half an hour to fill up. There's two things I think that's going to hurt. One is the realization that it takes a long time to recharge. And the other is When batteries get depleted and people have to replace them, the cost of that is going to be a major, major hit. And people are going to go, wow. I mean, I didn't realize, you know, I had this big outlay for this vehicle. And now some years down the road, I've either have significant depreciation on the vehicle or I have to replace these batteries at a huge cost, way more than changing out an engine in a vehicle and way sooner than I would have to change out an engine in a vehicle. Yeah. I learned that lesson from a friend of mine that drives a Tesla. And he says, you know, I just lease them every three years. They improve the batteries. They improve the mileage, which is what I did because I don't want to face those battery costs. My car weighs over 6,000 pounds. And that's the other thing in terms of infrastructure. People don't realize how much those batteries weigh compared to, let's say, a gas combustion engine. Yeah. So given this, what would you be doing in the oil markets right now? Right now, you know, it's great for heading into the holidays. The price of energy has been pulling down. But there's, Robert, there's so many wild cards out there when it comes to energy next year. The election, the war in the Middle East, you've got OPEC. I mean, all kinds of variables. It would be a very difficult market to predict. You're right. It is difficult. So I ran one of my stock screens just before we got on this call and just to see what's popping up high. And the ones on my particular stock screen, I look at a bunch of variables and, you know, there's some... uh well, Petrobras came up pretty high. Now, I don't trust Petrobras. I, I invested in them before and, and the government, you know, kind of stuck their hand in my pocket and I, I won't do that anymore, but they're showing up very highly ranked. The MLP MPLX popped up very high and I have owned that before. It's done quite well, although whenever the uh, pandemic hit, it took a deep, deep dive. But then you have some of the super majors and particularly the foreign super majors. Shell showed up high. Total Energy showed up high. Any showed up high. And one that didn't show up high on my screen, but I'm personally high on because I think in the long run, they have been the best managed of the integrated super majors. And that's Chevron. I listened to them on on, uh, CNBC this morning. They said Chevron just hit a 52-week low. Now, I remember when Chevron is one of my recommendations in one of my newsletters. And over the years, I mean, we have got huge returns on Chevron. And I always recommend people sell covered calls with Chevron because they can generate income of 15% off their shares. And I remember when Chevron was like $180, $190 and people had covered calls on there at $150 and they were saying, should I jump those covered calls up? And I said, nope. I said, this is volatile. I said, keep them at $150. And so now Chevron, I think, is back down below $150. So that was good advice. But it's time probably to to buy some more Chevron. Over the long haul, Chevron has done, you know, very, very well. I've never been disappointed to buy Chevron. See what the yield is up to. Yeah, the yield is up over 4.2% on what I consider the best oil company around. I'm just looking at the chart. I mean, Chevron got up to $190 $190 at one point this year, and they've pulled all the way back to about 140 So Chevron is one that I'd be looking at. You know, in the midstream space, I see that energy transfer ranks up there pretty high. I've, I've always been a little cautious about that one. But 
I mean, the metrics are there. The metrics say, you know, it, it's a good one. Suncor Energy is up high. Just scan it. Plains All-American, that's probably, that's one of the highest ranking MLPs that I see on the list here. But anyway, those are some places. But interestingly enough, more of the foreign integrated super majors on there. I don't see ExxonMobil on the list. I don't see Chevron on the list, but personally, I'd be comfortable buying Chevron. And then there's Valero. If oil prices do go down, that's when margins tend to expand with the refiners. And I think Valero is the highest ranking refiner I see on the list here. And it's a longtime favorite of mine. Well, I'm just looking at Chevron and Berkshire owns what almost a hundred, well, a little over 123 million shares. So it's a very large holding in Berkshire and he's not selling. Yeah. No, I mean, there'll be some volatility, but over the long haul, I mean, even during COVID, when Shell cut their dividend, Chevron came out and said, our dividend is the most important thing. You know, we want to take care of shareholders here. And they did not cut. They continued to raise their dividend. And they're dividend aristocrat. You know, they've raised their dividend for more than 25 straight years through ups and downs. And so, you know, people tell me, you know, I want to put money in one oil company and just leave it there for the rest of my life. Chevron is like one or two on the list that I would tell people to do that with. All right. Well, listen, Robert, as we close, if our listeners would like to follow you, tell them how they can do so at either in uh, Investing Daily or at Forbes. And you also have a couple newsletters. Yeah. So, you know, for just general energy, environmental sort of information, Forbes is where you're going to find that. You can just Google me at Forbes. I was just checking. I've had 10 million views on my articles in the past couple of years. And Forbes has told me before that's tops among all the energy writers there. So those get republished and you, you may find those elsewhere, but usually they're published first at Forbes. And then at Investing Daily, that's specific investment advice. I have a newsletter called Utility Forecaster. It's not just utilities, it's income investments. You know, we cover REITs and we cover the energy sector. And then I've got a covered call newsletter called Income Accelerator. And we sell covered calls and we sell cash covered puts. We consistently outperform the S&P 500 there at lower risk than the S&P 500. All right. Well, listen, Robert, as always, pleasure having you on the program. Have a great rest of the year and happy holidays. Thanks, Jim. It's great talking to you. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888 486 3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content, where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense News Hour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.